high-end diners are in for a meal that they're not prepared for, and a couple moves out to a farmhouse, or country house, I should say, that they feel is the next step of their life, but things are just not going the way they planned. As we're here on Overdue Rentals talking about the new film from Searchlight Pictures, The Menu, and the 1988 Chevy Chase comedy classic, Funny Farm. Welcome back, everybody, to Overdue Rentals. I am Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. And as you just heard, we've got two killer, I think kill, I would say killer films, and not trying to be, you know, uh, we are double entendre there. <laughs> uh, but we got two great films, I think. The brand new, The Menu, which is something that I, when I first saw, I guess just a print ad for. I'm like, I kind of have a feeling I know what this is. And so, I, you know, just like anything, I try not to pay attention to, and it's not exactly what I thought it was, which is great. Just so great. And then our guests, Seth Reese and Will Tracy, who wrote the film, are with us, and they have chosen to talk about, as their overdue rental, the 1988 comedy, Funny Farm. And what's really interesting is, uh, as you're going to hear in the interview, they picked this movie before we even gave them the list. Yeah. Then they saw the list, saw the movie was on the list. I believe, Matthew, this is one of your picks. And then... (laughs) They went with it. And that's that's just another thing where it's like two people that just got the show. Uh, you're definitely going to hear that in a moment. So I guess we should just get started. Yeah. Seth Will, please join us here at the Overdue Rentals counter. And don't forget to bring all of your late tapes. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time, first of all. And, and for the movie, of course. Oh, of course. Thank, uh, thank you. you. We're very excited. Thanks for having us. I'm all dressed up for ready for dinner. You look great. Oh my God. We look like shit. You look I great. know. You're, you have a great hair beard thing going it's on. Really good. You've really figured it out. Very man. nice. The hair's a little all over the place right now. I'll be honest with you. But no, that's, part of the, that's part of the appeal, I think. <laughs> <laughs> look, I got, I got to ask, though, when it comes to something like this, because it's always interest, interests me for every movie that's done for more than just pure entertainment. But specific, specifically with this film, was this something where you kind of had the satire send up of a specific kind of focal point you wanted to start with, or was it more the thematic side and you work backwards? Oh, that's an interesting question. question. Yeah, I mean, I think probably our brains are wired in a way because we've worked at The Onion to, um, we do think of a kind of a, a, an area or a precinct for a story or a subject matter that seems like it, it has a particular potential for satire. And then we kind of build it out from there. What are, what are all the parts of this world that we want to destroy? So uh, probably it started with a feeling of like, we're going to get good stuff out of this area. And then the thematic stuff kind of probably came out. Yeah, I think it, yeah. I think uh, it's a lovely question because I do think the thematic, the thematic stuff ultimately comes with the people you choose to populate it. Yeah. And so because, you know, the, the, the people and their motivations, uh, what they love, what they hate, what they're talking about, that furthers theme uh, the more and more you write them. I mean, they shouldn't just be like avatars for your theme, but um, yeah, the more, the more we get into the characters and their intentions, that, that pushes theme. And so then as you start to see the themes that are developing, um, then you can, that's when you can really get in there and enhance them, tweak them and make them stronger. And I know that, uh, you know, we really loved 
the theme of sort of entitlement and also this idea of consuming content and consuming, consuming, consuming to a point where you, you're not, people aren't even satisfied with what, by what they're consuming. All they do is consume. Mm. And, but, and then uh, but, and not appreciating the people providing the thing that uh, you, you are consuming. And then, uh, then from there, the sort of the artist and how he can be pushed, he or she can be pushed to the extreme uh, because they're exhausted. Uh, and because, and because yeah. they really care what those people out there are thinking. Yeah, they care. <laughs> That's know? the thing, they care. They want them to, they, yeah. you know, anybody, anybody who says, I don't care what they think, I question it. I, question it. I think when you make anything that's, yeah, when you're part of a culture of consumption, you make anything for, for an audience. Yes, of course, some part of you is hoping to be part of some conversation that's happening and that you are being uh, talked about favorably in that conversation. Yeah. You know, or else you want to be, or else you just be cooking for your family at home and taking great pride and like, I cook a nice dinner for my family. Yeah, I, I, it was, you know, there's no world where Chef Slowick is by himself at his, in, in some place of in upstate New York, cooks dinner for himself, says that was quite excellent and then goes to bed. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally different movie if yeah. there was. Yeah, it'd be a very different movie. Yeah. <laughs> it'd be like a nice 10 minute short film for like Pat Lafrida Steaks or something. Yeah, exactly. With Ray nice. in there. But you know what? Rafe would knock it out of the park. He would. <laughs> oh. That's right. oh, no question. And yeah. just, you know what? I said this to Mike when, when I first saw it finished because he saw it before me. And I'm like, look, there are always roles that you, you can say anybody could do something great with it. But Rafe was like built for this. Yeah, yeah. And we essentially were writing it for him at a certain point. We were kind of thinking it would be, maybe, maybe it could be him. And then he actually was sort of, there was some inter early interest from him. And then we were really writing it for him. And so it's, it's, we were hoping it would be in his wheelhouse. And I think what we recognized in him is this sort of mixture of, uh, he has an, an ability to be um, quite menacing and intimidating but he also has this sort of lightness and elegance and a master ceremonies quality. And you see him in Grand Budapest Hotel and he's totally at home and he's kind of light on his feet and he's elegant and he can do that in a way where um, it would be quite nice to be served dinner by him in some senses um, until it turns and then it's not so nice anymore. Yeah, I think, I think he's mischievous instead of evil. There's a glint and in his eye. There's a glint in his eye and, and, and that makes the, and that keeps the film ultimately funny throughout because there's yeah. a certain playful jauntiness throughout the entire movie even as things get darker and darker and darker and he i think he made um he didn't have to make an effort it's just the choice he, he would have made in uh, intrinsically but to you know he, it's, it's not a very screamy shouty physical yeah. performance i mean it's quite physically controlled it's quite quiet and there's a nice um sort of twinkle to it and um, it both makes it, um, I think, funnier and, and at times more chilling. And I, it, I think he made a series of great choices. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Because this whole movie just rides literally on a nice edge where he is both at times amusing and then menacing. And what's wonderful is how the two bleed into each other. And you're laughing in, in spite of these horrible things that are happening. Yeah. And I think, uh, just to just to praise him even more, I mean, he has he does this genius thing as an actor. He doesn't tell you he's going to do it. He just sort of does it where he'll kind of give you five great, perfect takes of what everyone sort of uh, agrees is probably the way it should be done. And then just so you have stuff to work with in the edit, if you want it, he'll kind of give you a fast one. 
a slow one, a, a, a really funny extreme one, a really sort of sad, somber one. He'll kind of give you options, which, because he can do it, because he can kind of do anything. Oh, and yeah. It's just an amazing, it just, so you're never at any loss in the edit for like, oh, gosh, this was, this seemed great this way on set, but now seeing it in the edit, it would be great if we had one where he was doing it a bit more intense or a bit more this, and you always have the option from it. Yeah. Just give you everything. Now, with developing those characters and themes, was there ever a point where the themes developed to a point that you had to maybe remove characters from the roster or tweak anybody into something different? I, I would say the, no, there wasn't any removal of characters from the roster. I would say what did happen though, as the movie became more sophisticated, because I think, you know, the movie first appeared on the blacklist. And I think then as it started to get actually produced, uh, the script actually became more sophisticated, not because of any sort of note or anything, it just became that way throughout the process. So as the script became more sophisticated, certain themes that I think are a little bit more elegant started to pop out. Um, and I'm actually quite thankful for that. Well, I mean, I would, I would say like jumping off of that a little bit, because I'm gonna say something that I normally wouldn't do, I guess people would probably shoo me away from doing an interview, but I'm gonna say by one, by one gripe with the movie, this is okay. a spoiler for some people. I think by what we learned by the end of it, Leguizamo should have been with the staff. Leguizamo should have been with the staff. A, fe a fellow artist who is now trying to reclaim uh, so, yeah, I'm not sure. Not a bad even, even the way he explained, like, how he kind of got involved with doing the good, was it Good Morning Dr. Sunshine? Was that right? Is that? Dr. Sunshine. Yeah. No, not, 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 a, not a bad move. Um, and just in terms of maybe, but, uh, no, not a bad move. I think, the, I, I think, you know, John's character is actually, for Rafe, the, the scariest one. <laughs> because that's exactly how he does not want to end up. Uh, an, uh, an artist who has lost his purpose and who's now doing schlock. And so this night, I feel like, you know, if this, if, if this, if they continued, if tomorrow happened, Rafe is, Rafe's character is kind of at the top of the mountain and he's starting to go down and headed into John territory. Yeah. And I think to off him is almost like a relief to right. get rid of him. Uh, but in, in a way, yeah, it's, uh, there, there's a danger then about letting him into the kitchen because then the danger is that we're sort of meeting in the middle um, <laughs> as we're both on our descent. <laughs> I think Chef would still want to still feel very much like, well, you can't do what we do. Um, and I'm not, uh, but it's, it would be interesting. I think also that Leguizamo's character is so at this point um, self-aware and broken about um, his failed promise that I think he would get in there, and the second he got in that kitchen, he would um, uh, he would choke. He would choke. Even washing dishes, I think he would find, uh, a, uh, <laughs> find a way to fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, I, I, I haven't washed dishes. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, serious rights. Matthew, want to just insult our guests even further? I, I, told, I told my guy I was going to bring this up before we even got on here, and I'm like, I'm doing it. I don't care. I'll do it. Do it. Yeah. I mean, if you can't have a conversation like that, clearly, what's well, I, I will say this, and I don't think this is a bad thing. There was a moment where maybe one of the characters was going to join the kitchen staff, and then we realized that would actually be his, the greatest accomplishment in his life. Yeah. And so, and so we were like, well, that, that doesn't work. Yeah, that doesn't work. So that, yeah. yeah. Right. It's just amazing, the just the way that everything ends. And obviously, no spoilers, but the way that everything ends up and the focal point 
of, of Anya Taylor-Joy and Ray Fine's interactions comes to something so simple and comforting. Yeah, right. And then walking out of this at TIFF and they've got the burger truck right there. Yeah. And that was just, and, and they had the menu printed on the side, but obviously they omitted a certain item yeah, because yeah. of right. its spoiliness. But just, <laughs> this really is an experiential film. And I've been telling everybody that I talk to, it's like, go see this with a crowd. Even if you see, even though I've seen it, I want to see people's reactions because the moment certain things hit, it was a wave of sound through that auditorium. It is fun with the crowd. It's that kind of movie. Yeah, right? I, I saw it. I've seen it in a couple group settings. One was a TIFF. I saw it was the surprise movie in London at the London Film Festival. I saw it in Savannah. It's so fun to watch with people. And I, I don't think Will and I ever intended to make like, uh, a romp in a certain mm. sense, but um, I'm I'm happy that we did. Like I'm happy. I knew we we knew that there were surprising things in it, but I, I don't think you know we turned it in four and a half years ago. So th it's not as if we're putting something on its feet immediately and getting immediate audience reactions. So yeah. I think that idea that oh I think maybe Searchlight had an idea that it would be fun experience for audiences. I think they knew, but I I don't think we kind of got the full idea that it would be. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah and there's also things that I don't think we expected that it's sort of like, oh, it's a, it's a movie kind of about an audience trapped in a room. And so then you get an audience trapped in a room watching it. <laughs> I think we see that overlap now. was like an interesting thing. And so when you see it with an audience, then you really feel that and because the tension is very palpable and the audience has some of the same skepticism that the customers in the restaurant do about the food. And then they are similarly surprised as the customers are. So it's, it has a nice integrated feeling between like the, the precinct of the film and then where you're watching it. So it's great, kind of a, a ideal theater movie, which we were not planning no. on. Well, you know, I would, I would actually sit and love to kind of expand on that for like three hours if we could, but since we're, <laughs> since we're on a time limit and since here on Overdue Rentals, we do like to talk about films that we thought once were really big, but for some reason don't get mentioned anymore. Yes. We do want to talk to you guys about a little, a little film that you talked about called Funny Farm, which yeah. went 1988 with Chevy Chase, which <laughs> was my, my childhood for a long time. I know, me too. It's like, and so we were, so, I think we had seen it, I wanted probably on your list. And, and, as, and so we but, were- but, but it was we, picked before we saw it on your list. And we thought there's no way this will be on their list. And there wow. was. Yeah. And we probably, we assume that maybe we seem like we're probably the similar, similar age that it might've just been one of those like video rentals that for whatever reason, as a kid, you get really attached to it and you watch it all the time and your friends are like, funny fun, what the fuck is that? But yeah. like, like really attached to it. And we, I, I, we were similarly very attached to the movie. I, I saw it in the theater with my dad. But, so I was like, I think I was five when it came out, but my dad would just take me to movies because he needed a buddy. So like I would, <laughs> I went, I went and saw Funny Farm. I went and saw. I mean, if it was Chevy Chase and he was in a movie, my dad was gonna go see it. Mm. So and guess what? It I think it plays very well today still. And also, there's something to be said about a lot of those like vintage Chevy Chase performances. They've held up surprisingly well because he's a very unsentimental and very um, that glibness but also that uh, I think he has an appreciation for um, how to make a scene. Um, uh, the comedy weirdly doesn't always feel hugely big. It's sometimes very verbal. Yeah. It's sometimes very- uh, Very in his face. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and there's, I've, I've found that his stuff has aged 
weirdly well, and I don't know why that exactly. I mean, is, I mean, I mean not him as a human, but yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> him as yeah. a human is aged weirdly not that great. But like yeah. him as yeah, yeah I think it's okay when it edges into like a somewhat um, dark or unlikable territory yeah. for his character. He's good. I don't think he seems invested in being likable in that yeah. way. And I think that that works and funny for him. I mean, his character's like a very self-centered prick. And it sort of ends and resolves in an okay way where he's kind of a good guy. But in a way, kind of not. He hasn't really atoned for what he's no. done in that marriage. And um, it's and he's so kind of nakedly um, uh, uh, prideful and needing to be bolstered by a, actually a woman who's more talented than him. Yeah. You know, so it's really, I, I really think that part of the movie is very interesting. And then just the central conceit of, of move of thinking you're moving into Norman Rockwell painting and you're actually moving into something quite tacky and gross. Well, I was gonna say, I think that's what's also funny because when we, when you first said, it, I'm like, oh, great, funny farm, I, you know, so amazing. I'm obsessed with this movie since I was a kid. But then I started actually realizing in a very vague and broad sense, there is a sort of a similarity for yeah. a part of a disillusionment of a dream between the menu and this. Like, if you look at that idea again of just trying to move to a more Norman Rockwell painting, like that movie perfectly, in like two quick scenes, like with him first sitting down for his typewriter, the window's open, he hears the bird, and then you cut to how many weeks later he's throwing the hot coffee on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great. And then, and then like, and then, oh, the ducks, and then the ducks are fucking weird. And yeah. then, oh, I'm going to go fishing and there's a black snake and then like, it's just like everything, it just, it's, it is like a descent, like the menu is sort of a, a weird descent into madness. Uh, Chevy Chase is sort of undergoing a, a descent a slow descent. Well, into... he's a guy who saw himself as being, oh, I'm going to be that guy. The guy who's out in bucolic wilderness being inspired by nature, but I'm a writer, but also I'm kind of a man of the people because I live out in the country and I and it's all going to be quite idyllic. And he has such a sense of himself, even from the choice of what his car is, which is like, this is a guy who really cares that he has that type of like cool vintage automobile. And it all just crumbles to shit. Partly because he realizes that he's not very good. <laughs> he's not very good, and then also the the people in the town also suck. Exactly, like it's a deterrent. Like they they're pretty shitty people. They're yeah, pretty right. bad. They're pretty awful people. Exactly. You're yeah. not you're not Philip Roth living out in Connecticut in the countryside <laughs> writing your brilliant novel. Right. And also, this town is not like you know part of in some beautiful painting. Yeah. It's, it's they're kind of gross and kind of weird. And the mailman's a drunk, and it's not nice. Yeah. <laughs> The sheriff can't even drive. That's so great. Like he needs to learn, and he and just that scene where he drives the car to the lake is like same time next week. Really, <laughs> this is a Gene Shepherd story for him. Yeah, right. Exactly. It has that Gene Shepherd story where it feels like it should feel sweet and nostalgic, but it never quite goes there. It always just feels like I want to get out of here. There's like snakes in the pond, and like I want to leave. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I think it's I think it's weirdly underrated and. It's also very strange that it's directed by George Roy Hill. Yep. Not yeah. That type of comedy, but in a way that's good because it doesn't go too broad. It, so it stays sort of grounded and stays sort of yeah. interesting. And yeah. Yeah. What I find funny too about it is that, you know, back then, even so, I mean, I can't remember, I was eight years old when it came out. Um, but, you know, thinking about what was popular then and then watching it now and hearing like her criticism of the book, granted, it probably was horribly written. Yeah. But her, it's like your idea of a great book is four poker buddies knocking over a casino, which is probably like top tier entertainment nowadays. Somehow, <laughs> <laughs> four poker just I mean, we, Will, Will and I, Will and I were talking about also. Oh, 
but he's watching her read it at the and she's like and he's like there's like three laughs yeah on the first page and uh, <laughs> his name you think that guy's name is funny? his name is funny oh my god that ugh. and then when she's and then when she tells him it's bad it's Right. I mean, and she can't even tell him. She smiles and then she just starts crying. Head her, <laughs> her hands and eventually says, "Burn it." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was sort of a—it's a very funny thing, but like, if for anyone who's married, there is a kind of nightmarish thing where, like, you want to support the person you're with, but there's also the the crux of your relationship is honesty. So, like, that that thing of like, how do I be honest, which is probably going to be the best thing for the person. Or how do I mollify their feelings? And like, that's easy to do with a friend, but it's not so easy to do with a, with your yeah. spouse. So it's, 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 yeah, I love that scene. Well, it's also funny how, you know, like, oh, Andy, and like, there's a moment where he's happy that Andy the squirrel is the star of the first book. And then she starts writing the second book. And he's like, he's like, what adventures will Andy get into this time? And she's like, he doesn't make it past the first book. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, he gets run over by a truck or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just that beautiful shot of the pre the previous scene we were talking about where she's reading it and then you see that shot where he Chevy's going to the liquor store and then you see him right in the window. In the window laughing just, like, There's like, a shot like that in the menu. There is a shot like that in the menu. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler is looking in the yeah, window while in the, the window. women are reading the course. Yeah. But you know, and she's great. I don't the actress I think became a born again Christian and married a hockey player, and I don't know what happened to her. I don't think she acts anymore, but she's very yeah, good. excellent. And she I think she could have had a, a, a really great career as career as kind of a light comedy actor, but it just I don't know, but just didn't happen. Jesus got in the way. <laughs> and her character especially has a great development because in any sort of, you know, you put that in lesser hands and she's sort of like the doting wife, and she might have lied to him about the the, the book, but she yeah. becomes the writer and she eventually grows into this person in this house. Yeah. And yet he's the one that put it into motion. So that's why he has that. The extent that they're really out there because of his ego and like he had a sense of, I'm going to be a country writer. And really, she's the one who thrives and he completely like tailspins. Yeah, it's all about stomp, <laughs> like stomping him into the ground. Yeah, <laughs> What I found very interesting also about the movies, I remember back when it came out, you know, a big part of the marketing always was still the uh the lamb was it the lamb fries scene yeah, right, right. but to this day even if i forget about the movie for like a month or so or a year or so when anybody ever says to me something about not knowing any anything i immediately go i know it you know it yellow dog knows it <laughs> yellow dog doesn't even know what town he lives in and people have no clue <laughs> yellow dog yeah. and then like and then and then when they they make they make the offer on the house they want to buy everything including the dog and he's like what about yellow dog? <laughs> <laughs> and that, I'll tell you what, the, the scene where they come back with the first dog and it just runs away. Boy, he loves that, to run. That's really funny. He I mean, really it's loves just, running. <laughs> it's such a good move. It's such a good move. Like and when I imagine the writing of that move, it's like he gets out and the dog just runs away. I mean, it's so fun. And the callback of the half an hour into the movie after that, they see the dog in the distance still running somewhere in the background. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Underrated. Yeah. Oh, it, 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 it looks it's not yeah. streaming anywhere currently. So you have to well, purchase it. I think it was considered a flop and, and sort of one of um, it, kind of one of the films that hastened uh, the, the, the slow, gradual commercial descent of Chevy Chase's career, which is too bad because I think it's one of his best. I he, think it's one he of his is, best. Things. He is like, it's an understated performance. Like, he's not it's too likable. He's, he, yeah. I mean, like, he he's, He's really good in it. He's not. I was. I was talking because I was talking to Will about it. Um, there's, 
I would say the one, my one problem with the movie is, you know, when they're on the boat and he starts knocking the guy out. Mm -hmm. That I, I don't know why. I, I feel like totally that doesn't make sense because what's great about the movie is when stuff happens to him and he has to react to it as opposed to him creating why he might be an asshole. And so like, uh, it just, it just to me didn't. I, 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 didn't I love giving sp specific script notes to Funny Farm. It's, it's very, <laughs> this is the kind of thing we do. It's like if they had done what they should have done was this. Well, okay. you know, if if, true. if John entered the kitchen, if yeah, Chevy right. Chase, was there, if Chevy yeah, Chase, right. no, but I, I, I was just, I was just kind of like, um, it's better when shit is happening to him and he's not. Do, creating the chaos. It is funny though, the callback of later in the movie when the, the times people have been paid to act really warm and nice, but the guy who was punched by Chevy Chase still, still, still tries to go. That was good. No, that's that, a good callback. That, it is good, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm so glad you guys chose it as your overdue rental because as I understand, you actually maybe have an actual overdue rental somewhere sitting in your house? Yes, I, I when I, growing up in Portland, Oregon, there was a, a, next to Fred Meyer's grocery store, there was a video store we used to go to called First Stop Video. Um, and we rented movies from First Stop Video one night, and then we brought them back. It was overdue. I think we were like, we only had them for three nights, and we brought them back like the next week. And in that intervening week, the video store had gone out of business and was closed. This was sort of when like video stores were kind of starting to go out of business. More yeah. And so then we just owned those movies. They were just like in our collection forever, and we watched the movie, I, the only, the one I remember that we had was a movie from, I want to say 1992 or three called Once Upon a Crime. I believe it was the only feature film directed by Eugene Levy. I think it was written by the writing team of Nancy Myers and Charles Shire. Nancy Myers, of course, who's gone on to be a whole industry unto herself, but they had written Baby Boom together and Private Benjamin and Father of the Bride. And I think this was uh, their biggest flop that they wrote together. And it's sort of a murder mystery ensemble comedy set in Monte Carlo with John Candy, Jim Belushi, Sybil Shepherd, Sean Young, yep. Richard Smith. And, and a dachshund. A, a dachshund. And I think it's probably not good. But nevertheless, I would never know if it's good or not because it's so burned in my brain. I, my brother and I could recite like the entire screenplay to each other. And once it reaches that level of like, familiarity in your soul it doesn't matter it doesn't matter and you love it and you think it's yeah. ever and you actually you make it funny in a way that it wasn't i would uh at my, the video rental store near me i would walk in with my rental i was so this is i was probably like i don't know 10 or something i would walk in with the rental that i was giving back which was blood sport and as i was walking in <laughs> and as i was walking in they would take kickboxer from the shelf and i would ex i would just exchange blood sport for kickboxer. And I did that <laughs> so many times. What's that? Did Universal Soldier ever become part of the rotation? Universal Soldier is just a little bit later. And a little too like, uh, has vague sci-fi elements. Yeah, a little, yeah. little, little, little more sci-fi. Um, maybe Double Impact became, where, where, the, where they play the twins. Uh, that was part of it. And then there was like, Rocky and Jaws were a part of it too, but the, the, it was it was always the kickboxer blood sport. And there's kickboxer. something about video stores too, where like 
like your parents could have just bought you those two movies on VHS. Yeah. But in a way it was like, no, that ruins the, that's the magic is like, you yeah. go there, what am I going to get? I'm committing to this. You bring it home, you're excited. You don't own it. You can't watch it anytime. Right. Only the store has it. Right. You know? It's still so, an event. It makes an event when you watch it. It's an yeah. event. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was that was the weekend tradition for my brothers, my father and I. We would alternate between Hollywood and Blockbuster and just yeah. see what they had. And we, uh, truth be told, we always liked Hollywood because it was the the rentals seemed a little more forgiving and the Hollywood supply chain was better. Yeah. yeah. And I say that I used to work at a video store in high school, a small independent video store in Portland that was basically put out of business by Hollywood Video because it was down the street. So I, I hate to say it, but Hollywood Video was I thought a little bit stronger. Um, yeah. And, uh, yes, but there's, you know, look, we can all, reasonable minds can disagree on this. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Next time we'll, we'll go even further into it. This thank was you. great. Have a good one. Bye guys. Seth and Will, everybody. Thank you gentlemen so much. Now, again, I was so happy that I got to enjoy this movie. You know, this is again, something that I walk into suspecting that I, you know, it would be something that I'm familiar with or something that I know about. And what I, I think I spoke to you about this, Mike, after I saw the movie. I think what's funny about the movie is, yes, it is very much specifically a satirical send-up of quote-unquote foodie culture, as we'll put it. There's a lot more than just that, but if you want to generalize it. But there's like an ultimate end game here that not only was I not sure that's where it was going, but once I learned it, that was what was more important to me than anything else personally. The best way I can describe it, and this is how I like to describe a lot of movies that are just that thrilling, is it's like being thrown off of a cliff in a car. Just that weightless feeling of not knowing what's happening next That's and heightened in the moment attention. And that's really where the menu thrives. And that's why, you know, I said it in the interview, I said it to people before, I'm going to continue saying it. This is a crowd film. This is something mm -hmm. that needs to be enjoyed with others just because of how everybody reacts to it and part of it is the comedy but part of it is just where it goes and where everyone's tolerance gets tested but you know it's funny too because and i won't say anything specific to give it away uh and the best way i'll put it is as a for instance is when he when he brings out when the things start to really turn which is when he brings out the first like the head i guess sous chef if you want to call it that oh yeah and Mike, as you know, and as many of our listeners know, I have a weak affinity to vomit because I have not thrown up in now 32 years. Um, and in my head, I almost thought that's what was going to come up. Like it was going to start turning into that. And so when it, luckily it didn't, even though it's still shocking or you kind of, maybe you know a little bit, like I was getting prepared for that just in case. And so it took me a minute to re readjust myself after that. But yeah, I mean, like, I'm glad that there also then some things were avoided that I was glad they didn't try and do. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was just, you think it's going, or, 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 I, okay, we can just put this on the table because it's not where the film is going. Both of us had this inclination that it was going to be something about human flesh. Oh, they're killing people. And well, yeah, killing our critics to feed ourselves kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. And that's, you know, that, that it's, it's an old Saw horse, but I'm going to keep leaning on it. That's a lesser version of the movie. That's what someone else would have done as a more standard sort of like, it would make a cool horror movie, but this is more urbane with its humor and with its its terror because the terror doesn't come from some horrific maniac running out with like a knife. This is, this is a very measured and plotted dish of revenge. And that's why, and that's why it's brilliant that it comes from people like Seth and Will because 
amongst other things, not just the only things, but they they were writers for The Onion. And The Onion, I think, is no matter who comes in and out of that place, that is the five-star version of, 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 of satire to me. Because like if you go to like the their their competitors and like especially when it just was online only, you know, a lot of them are just like, we'll make a funny headline. We don't have to care about what's inside. But the people who work for The Onion, and again, they also I think they've read for John Oliver and other things here and there. Like it's a lot of truly understanding a level of satire to where they are not just going to come up with an idea and then just hopefully swing on it. They go the full nine yards, all the research, everything in there. It's it's well put together. It's not just an idea and that's it. And that's, yeah, that's that's just part of why back in high school, our dumb century was like a cornerstone book for me. Because I remember stumbling, that was the first time I stumbled upon The Onion. And I did not know that it was satire yet because it's, and I'm just looking at it. It's like, holy shit, man walks on fucking moon. And it's like, but they have been allowed to print it back? And then slowly, it dawns on me and it's like, oh, this is like Naked Gun and all those other things that I like to watch or, you know, going, showing a little bit of age. Uh, I wasn't terribly familiar, but I still remember not necessarily the news existing. Oh God, I love that. So the yeah. news. Yeah. Uh, my favorite, uh, I, I, I'm going to sound like an idiot doing it, but my favorite thing of all time of not necessarily the news is I think, I can't remember if it was every opening or just like a certain time. But the idea was, it was Henry Kissinger and Ronald Reagan on a plane to get on Air Force One together, I guess. And Ronald Reagan is eating, I think, French toast. And you just you see Henry Kissinger eyeing it and they put over, they overdub his voice going, or his thoughts going, he's not going to share any of that with me, is he? And it's just the funniest thing in the world. I was like, I love French toast. And it was just the greatest thing in the entire world. Or like the I, the opening always was them kissing the Pope's ring, but they're making them the whistling sound when they kissed it. So when whistling, whistling sound. <laughs> and again, that's just that's brilliant. The brilliant satire that is present in the menu is had to have come from minds like that. And even circling back to Funny Farm, well, it's not. I mean, you you could have probably driven it in more of a direction where it's sharper sort of satire. Like it, it kind of sits on the fence of yeah. What sort of movie 1988 would have expected because you're thinking chevy chase moves from the city to the country you're already expecting it to be more sharp and you know more barbs like in caddyshack but as we had mentioned before it is probably his warm one of his warmest if not warmest roles even though it still has him being the asshole yeah, well, again, also going further into, again, the film itself, because, yes, it's it's meant to be a comedy, and there's a lot of technical slapstick in it and doing, you know, the, the traditional Chevy Chase kind of stuff in that way. But when you dig into what's going on, it's actually, it's a lot deeper and a lot more almost like kind of soul-crushing than, than you would have originally thought. And I think I read that uh, George Roy Hill wanted them to dial back on like where they were going. Like, I think maybe Jeffrey Bohm's original draft or something was a little, or maybe just, there was something about the film when it was developing that it was a little more, a little rougher and a little darker. Mm. And it kind of, uh, oh yeah, yes. It's a, uh, this is straight from Wikipedia. Bohm said the tone of the film changed when he expected, from what he expected when director George Hill, uh, Hill signed, George wanted to do a much classier version than I ever imagined it to be, said Bohm. I imagine it to be a little cruder, more lowbrow humor, rougher, and more like the movies Chevy was doing at the time. But George was a classy guy, and he wasn't going to do that. 
Hmm. And you can kind of see both of those hands at work. Like you can see where Chevy might have gone a little further, or maybe had his freak outs. And you know, not too far, not too far down from that, you would get that because Christmas Vacation was only like a year or two years after this. Sure. And and for those who don't really know George Roy Hill, not to say that he's never done comedy before this, because he did he did make the movie Slapshot. Um, and there's comedy is this in a lot of his films, but to 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 kind of point out if you just know the name of the movie, the man made Butch Cassidy the Sundance Kid, um, The Sting. Uh, and then again, you know, also talking about comedy, you're talking about the world according to Garp, which is, you know, as far as both the book and the film go, like a very weird balancing act between comedy and really depressing drama. But then uh, just another, uh, you look at the writer, Jeffrey Bohm. This man did the Dead Zone adaptation with uh, Christopher Walken. He helped write Inner Space and The Lost Boys and then would do Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. And I think it was even on Roger Rabbit. Was it? You know what? It's funny. It's interesting. A lot of times, that how much you like. I'll know this already, but now I don't know anymore. No, I was wrong. He wasn't on Roger Rabbit, but just still, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Inner Space, Lost Boys, Dead Zone, like that's, and then the Lethal Weapon two and three, and you take all of those, and then you sort of put them up to Funny Farm, and it's very, it, it, it's very different. But I guess you could kind of see where they're coming from from the same writer. I also have to say, and not to not to kind of take away, but I also have to say. He was the co-creator of The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., which if nobody's seen it, was like their attempt to technically bring like a new Wild Wild West type show to, to, to TV. It was starring Bruce Campbell. And it's a lot, I actually recently rewatched a lot of it. And it's, it was great then. And I, I hardly remembered it. So I'm like, it's actually a really well put together show. And he also, uh, I think, wrote or co-wrote um, the, uh, the Billy Zane version of the Phantom, which I, which is to me, we're going to be doing an episode on eventually. That's a big overdue rental to my, my mind. That's a given. I mean, that, The Shadow, The Rocketeer, like those wonderful movies from a time before major studios owned comic companies. Oh, I'm sorry, not before that, because Warner Brothers, I think, had DC by that point. But yeah, it almost it's almost like they never existed apart from each other somehow. I don't know how that happens, but in my brain, yeah. that's how that's how it lives. Yeah, but that was yeah. Phantom is definitely going on this list, all those others. But but F Funny Farm was, again, that definitely was a film. And like, yes, my father took me to the theater. My, we, my whole family went to the theater to see um, Three Amigos when it came out. And granted, that's all, you know, that's Martin and and Short and Chase and lots True. of other people. But like, those were the films. So like, that was my childhood. So like, when something like Funny Farm came out, even though I had seen the Fletch movies and kind of like them, they, they were a little more advanced for my mind at that time as a child. Where Funny Farm kind of seemed to find that place where I can enjoy it on a certain level. And yes, it got seared into my brain. Well, here's another thing that we should throw out there because, it, first of all, it's a, ma it's a major league comedy. And we've had people already say in the current market where it's like, I don't know if you, you don't, we rarely get major league comedies like this anymore. But then another layer of, I don't know if they really would have done this now. This was based off of an actual book, like a comedy book. Yeah. It was from author Jake Cronley, who um, I, I maybe I should just test you out, Matthew, and see oh. if you know uh, two of the other films, two of the other books that were adapted into films. I see. Now I feel like I want to look and I'm going to be cheating. And I just kind of caught a glance of one. So I would know one, which I also uh, think is an overdue rental, though it has recently come out with some bad press about it because of. Uh, some reminiscing about Bill Murray on set, uh, uh, quick uh, which was quick change. 
Yeah, which I I still, you know, that, that's another thing. I, I would still watch that movie and talk about it. But at the same time, it, we're definitely going to be talking about the modern. What's What's the other one, though? What's the other one? The book was called, I think it's called Good Vibes. Hold on. Is it yeah. just vibes? Is it just the movie oh, vibes? No, no. The book is called Good Vibes. The film is called Let It Ride. And it's Richard uh, Which is definitely on my goddamn list. I fucking figured. <laughs> it's like, that's another one where I haven't seen it, but I remember knowing about it because they would just the ads were plastered and you just see Richard Dreyfus like kneeling at the horse track and like, yep. yeah. That was, no, that's definitely on my list, and uh, I know that this. I think this. I think there's a David Johansson movie coming out soon, or some point over there. We'll see. Maybe we can get David Johansson on something oh, like dude. that. But I should also say, because as as Seth and Will were talking about, and as I believe, you know, because to my mind, yes, Funny Farm wasn't as big as a hit as it should have been, or people didn't see it as being as funny as it should have been. But it, it, technically, by what everybody considers standard terms, it didn't flop. It made twenty five million off of nineteen million. Yeah, yeah. it's not huge profit. But it is a profit, at least. Yeah, no, it's 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 not a a dud. But at the same time, I do wonder how much they put into uh, marketing for this movie and how much they might have lost. Because um, much like Weird Al's UHF and when it was released into theaters, uh, Funny Farm was released into a summer that did not do it any favors because oh. uh, movies like Big, Coming to America. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Die Hard 2, and Crocodile... Oh, no, Die Hard, and Crocodile Dundee 2. That's where the two... Wow. Even, yeah, but Crocodile Dundee 2 probably made money in the box office. People loved the first one, so it probably yeah. was a big pull. Yeah, like, those were all in theaters that summer. And, it, I mean, maybe this was just when the summer box office really started to get crowded with these late, early frames. And then, like, the next year, you would see Batman come out. And I think Lethal Weapon 3 was out around the same time. I killed, I hurt Rocketeer and UHF when they were out in theaters. But think, but again, this goes back to, though, a, a main tenant for me of, of Overdue Rentals, huh. which is where, granted, Big has a, a, a heartwarming story behind it, and Hoover and Roger Rabbit is, you know, a mystery in a lot of ways, but Big, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Coming to America, Funny Farm, comedies were a big part of the big box office releases compared to, yeah, granted, Die Hard was another turning point, but the idea yeah. that comedies had a much bigger play in this than they do now is a, is a big thing still, as a big sticking point with me. But even with Die Hard, you still had Bruce Willis cast on the back of Moonlighting. Yep. And that was just another thing of this era where it's like, ooh, let, what 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 movie can we put Eddie Murphy in? What movie can we put Chevy Chase in? What movie can we put Bill Murray in? What can we put? Eventually, became what movie can we put Bruce Willis in? Like this was still that era where comedians were able to. They were a big draw. Like the movie star was still there, but the comedian movie star was especially there throughout the eighties. Yeah, I, I mean, and again, but we'll we'll go into this another time, and we'll eventually do an episode on it because even though it's still technically big. My, because my thing always goes back to City Slickers. City Slickers not only I say that counts. Oh, one hundred percent counts. Jack Palance doing the doing the one handed push up at the Academy Awards, being nominated yeah. for Academy Award. That thing. Yeah, the box office. That is the quintessential to me. Well, not the quintessential, but one of the quintessential overdue rental type movies. Oh, oh, totally. And if anything, I would probably go on record right now and say comedy is one of the most rewarding genres in that respect because. Yeah comedies become so big 
because of the people that are in them, because of the jokes that are in them. But it's always so hard to keep that, to do that in a way that's always going to be fresh. And you're, and it's always hard to, especially when it came to City Slickers 2, it's hard to do it again. Well, you know what it is? And it's something where, again, it was a comedy. They're comedies and they succeeded and they had the stars. So it was, like you're saying, we'll say Billy Crystal, Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, all these people, Martin Short, Steve Martin, that kind of led a lot. Father of Bride, the remake of Father of Bride, another great example. Yeah. But it seemed that where eventually, even where comedy was still ruling the box office in a little bit, it seemed like it kind of took a turn where instead it was the comedians, it was the filmmakers. So then it was like, once the Farley Brothers hit, it was, if it's not a Farley Brothers movie, it wasn't going to get as big as play. Then it was Judd Apatow for a while. It wasn't Judd Apatow wasn't going to get as much play. And now the comedy just seems to have not died and it's still there, but it does not have the same play it used to. No, comedy is it, it, comedy is probably another genre where streamers seem to be really capitaliz- capitalizing on it. I mean, go back to Judd Apatow. Where did his last movie wind up? It wound up on Netflix. And but even, even still, I think when it comes to streaming, the horror community is killing the comedy, even streaming, where that's yes. getting a lot more play on, on both now, especially this year, both in theater and on streaming. Yep, because Shudder has become a dynamo and Screambox is starting to build themselves up because they got Terrifier too. Yeah, but no, and but look, I mean, look at besides your Marvel movies and besides one or two massive temple things that come out, what's ruling the box office right now? It's horror films. Yeah, oh, it is, it's, it's just been a fantastic frame for them. And I saw, I forgot who it was, but someone tweeted out horror has always been a reliable genre. And that's, I think that's absolutely correct. And what's funny too is that it's not necessarily even sometimes ruling the box office or making it's 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 making the splash in the box office of what they expected to make, but it's also a fan and critical response to a lot of films that are just like they're the talk they're what you see being talked about everywhere. All I'm gonna say is Terrifier Two kickstarted for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It is now over eight million. It's over eight million, right? Last time I heard it was like five. Okay, yeah. It might be over 10 at this point, but it, the point is, it is like several million in on its run. And you look at all these big studio films that are so safe and so measured, but there is so much pressure considering the money and the construction that goes into it, especially a Marvel film or the next Avatar. Like these movies have such high expectations set for them. And meanwhile, you put something out like a Terrifier 2 or... A, I would even venture to say if you did it right, Funny Farm could still play now. Like that was not, still not, very- Chevy, not with Chevy Chase though. It would have to be somebody much different. No, no. Like <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know who you would cast in that role now. But safe studio version would probably be Chris Pratt. Well, it's the thing is, Wait, what I find no. funny is, yeah, but I, I even think that there wouldn't even go with somebody who's a comedian. I think they would go with somebody who is maybe can know they can do comedy, but they're not known for comedy. You know? Um, yeah. Like I, I would honestly, I'm gonna throw a name out there, and uh, I'm surprised I'm even saying this. I would, I would think you would put like Freddie Stroma in the lead for this. Hmm. I don't think that's a bad idea. Right? No. Uh, I, didn't, but- I didn't. Even if I seen him do stuff previously, until I saw the Peacemaker, I didn't think he could pull something like that off. And now that I know yeah. he can. I'm like, all right, because you need somebody who can who have that balance, and I, okay. that's where I find. Granted, if if going back to what you were saying, honestly, I think it would be more instead of a Chris Pratt, it's probably more of a Seth Rogen. 
Yeah, I was I was already nixing Pratt because he'd just be too he would be too at home yeah. in that. Unless you tweak the story where it's like, oh, he came from here, but you know, he moved into the city and tried to be big. But I like Freddie Stroma better just because of his ability to be so awkward and yet so funny, and neither is forced. Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, again, I'm not saying there couldn't be other people, but that's the that's the face that popped out at me when I started thinking about it. No, that's that's and that's that's the whole point. It's <laughs> you cast him in that. I bet if they had done that, that might have been. You put that out at the right time, that could have been a nice, cool and easy sort of like windfall there. And it 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 really is sad that we we have to have the conversation sometimes of what would be made, what would go to streaming, yeah. what would be this, because it's also segmented. Meanwhile, Funny Farm drops in 1988, and it's like no matter what, like direct video wasn't as big as it as as it was like in the early aughts. So there really was, and there was no streaming. So there was no way that that, that either was getting shelved for some unforeseen yeah. reason or it was going to theaters. Uh, yeah, and, and, and anything direct to anything other than the theater at that point was an official death sentence. Was It's not a death sentence anymore. Then it was a death sentence. No, absolutely. Like it was really when Disney started to crack into that in the 90s that, it, that the stigma sort of started to go away. And then you had Universal doing it a lot. And then Warner Brothers in the... The early aughts. I mean, hell, that's how we got trick or treat. Yeah, it's true. Dumped the video because they were they didn't want to release it to theaters for some reason. But it's just wild when you look back at how these things were advertised, how they were made, the type of movie, and you're you just try to picture it like, okay, sitting in the theater full of people that showed up and said one for fun or two for funny farm or whatever for funny farm. Yeah. Like people showed up for funny farm. See, Meanwhile, I'm, now it's, it's not as easy to just throw that in the theaters and people show up. What did it go up directly against? Do we know? Because now I'm interested to know what it's actual, like official opening weekend competition was. Is there some place I can find that information? Ah, let's find out. Um, no sponsor, but I believe box office Mojo would be. Well, that's where I went. And I don't know if I'm missing something that I'm supposed to be clicking on to find out. Well, that's going to be something. Uh, let's see. Because it was number one on its opening weekend, it looks like. Or no, it was number four. Excuse me. It's number four on its opening weekend. Oh, let's see. Domestic. Oh. So it went up against. So this is, let me see what weekend because big was was still there, but was that its opening weekend? Okay, week one. So it was actually up. It was directly up against big. So both of them opened that weekend. Big and the only other the only other opening movie that weekend was Decline of Western Civilization Part Two: The Metal Years, which was number fifteen uh, in the box okay. office. So not only was it number going up against its first its opening weekend with big. But Crocodile Dundee 2 was actually number one in the box office, and it was in its second week. Rambo wow. 3 was number three in its second week, and then Under Funny Farm in its third week was Willow. That's, that's, that's stiff competition just in general, because it's interesting. Big and Funny Farm in the same week, and I'm still just... But Big... See, Tom Hanks was a star, was a comedy star when Big came out. But oh, he was yeah. a star he was after Philadelphia, and then he is now. So it's hard, it's it's weird thinking about it retroactively, but even then, Big was a bigger movie, ultimately, even weeks down the road, in my mind. Oh, yeah, because I'm just sort of looking at the weeks after, and, like, Big was still number two the weekend after. Meanwhile, Funny Farm gets knocked down by Poltergeist 3. 
Wow. Presidio and big business debuting that week. I love big business is also on the list. <laughs> oh, it has to be. And big, like big business, like big business was third that weekend. Again, what can we put Bed Midler and Lily Tomlin in? Like it, it, this was just, this was a great decade for comedy. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like that was the ruler to me. I mean, even though- and Beetlejuice was out around this time too. Was it really? Interesting. Yeah, Beetlejuice, in, yeah. Uh, Beetlejuice was in its sixth week when Funny Farm opened. So strange. I mean, look, I mean, Bloxy Blues is on there, Three Men and a Baby. Good Morning Vietnam was number 10. Uh, Colors, Colors was number six. I didn't I didn't even know Colors was that big when it came out. To me, that like kind of like disappeared like the weekend after it came out. But it's there. It's oh, there. yeah. Colors, colors, colors. Anyway, everybody, I think that's your sign to go and cross Funny Farm off your overdue rentals list. Go make sure you go see the menu out that it's now, when you after you listen to this, it'll be out a few days after. But make sure you go get your tickets and see the film. And then come back, tell us what you thought of both movies. Mike, Absolutely. where can people find us? Well, we're busy not trying to close out a conversation the proper way because around here, getting the last word is the most important thing. You can find it. Uh, I, I, the minute I heard that line, it's like, that's the callback. That's, that's, that's the cherry. <laughs> also, Bill, okay, small, small, small diversion. Bill Feckerback being in here from Coach as one of the Criterion brothers. I don't. Where he kind of sort of talks like this. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Because he's everybody, because now everybody knows him as Patrick. From yeah, oh, yeah, Patrick Stark and SpongeBob. But when we're not busy derailing ourselves with pop culture references from films or outside of films, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show, on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals, and you can email us love letters, bills for the cemetery because of that uh, damn burial plot. Because, you know, I'm trying to think of his name at this point. Oh, man, I, whatever. Just. Yeah, I, almost, I even rewatched it, I almost forgot about that. If you have any questions, concerns, love letters, suggestions, send them to overdurentals at gmail.com. While we have you here, while you're on the internet, you can find other episodes of ours uh, wherever you ethically source your podcasts, because believe it or not, we've mentioned other films like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, Terrifier 2, uh, well, both are from the same episode, as a matter of fact, but yeah. there may be a couple other movies that we've mentioned that we have done episodes on. Or if you're listening to these out of order, we've done them in the future, but you've heard them before this. It gets kind of complicated, but that is the world of podcasting. Time does not exist. Mm -hmm. Where we do exist is on fine platforms like Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher. Oh, uh, I already said Audible, but I'll say Audible again because Audible. I mean, that's still something that sticks out in my mind. And while you're listening to us on all these platforms, they always have a you will always have a chance to rate, review, and subscribe so you do not miss an episode. And you keep telling us that we're doing a good job and tell us the movies you want to see. So go ahead and do all three of those things while you're there. Friends, family, listeners, I think it's about time that we head off this funny farm and we send you all off with a hearty bye-bye.